Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council and is a member of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. We start this episode of Archiver with an endorsement, not of this podcast, although I would never say no to that, but with the first presidential endorsement by the New York Times on October 11, 1860. Mr. Lincoln of Illinois, known as Old Abe, age 51, height 6 feet 7, by profession rail splitter, is to be our next president. The Times began, the thing seems pretty sure. Why height is important, the Times doesn't say. But it wraps up this way. Things will go on very much as they have hitherto, except that we shall have honesty and manliness instead of meanness and corruption in the executive departments and a decent regard for the opinions of mankind in the tone and talk of the government and on the subject of slavery. Newspaper endorsements were crucial for political candidates, be it for president or city council. It's less so now, but they're still important. Here's a little bit of President Trump's meeting with the Washington Post editorial board last year. Uh, as has been agreed, this is an on-the-record meeting with the editorial board. Uh, we want to try to cover as many subjects as we can, so I won't delay things, but uh, wanted to, before turning it over to Fred, our, uh, our editor, just say, is, ask you if there's anything you wanted to say, or even perhaps we heard you might be announcing your foreign policy advisory team soon, if there's anything you can share on that. We are going to be that. doing that, in fact, uh, very soon. I'd say during the week we'll be announcing some, some names. It'll always grow. Any that you can start off with this morning with us? Well, you know, I hadn't thought in terms of doing it. If you want, I could give you some of the names. I I wouldn't be delighted. I wouldn't mind. Presidential candidates have historically made stops in New York, Washington, L.A., Chicago. But Kansas candidates, from Senate to city council, made the trek to court editors and publishers in Emporia, Iola, Parsons, Garden City, towns all over Kansas, where winning over these small-town papers was crucial to election. And many of these editors became giants themselves in Kansas politics. The podcast is Archiver, the episode, Small But Powerful, Me. I'm your host, Sam Zeff. So the most famous small-town editor in Kansas was, of course, William Allen White of the Emporia Gazette. We talked a lot about White and his views on education in our last archiver. Archiver historian Virgil Dean, while researching White, unearthed what appears to be the only surviving recording of the editor. Before we go on, I want to play just a little bit of that speech, since this is the only place you'll be able to hear White's voice, at least for now. Maybe the basis of education should be the capacity for, a tra- for trained attention. That capacity for trained attention should first of all include the ability to read 50 pages of a serious book at one reading and further than the further capacity an hour or so later to put down intelligently some account of what the 50 pages contain using good, simple English, properly spelled and punctuated. If a man can read without yawning 50 pages of any serious book, not a novel, not a polemic, but an intelligent, popular discussion of the many problems of life which concern us, probably that man has the beginning of an education. Otherwise, no matter what degrees he has, no matter what grades he may have made in college, he has wasted his time. 
That's White speaking at the University of Kansas to a national radio audience on November 2, 1938. The topic was education, which he was passionate about, but he's best known for his politics. He was a close friend of Teddy Roosevelt and was a player in Republican politics for most of his life. But White wasn't the only small-town editor in Kansas to play a political role. Archiver historian Virgil Dean says White connected early Kansas editors to more contemporary editors. I think if you look at Kansas history, Kansas's history in, in, in terms of journalism, that's a really interesting connection between editors or publishers and this, this early scope of Kansas history. And I can, I can really see three generations or, or maybe more of, of very prominent editors, and White kind of comes in the middle. You have some really significant individuals uh, like John Martin, who was a editor and then governor, uh, but he became he started during the territorial era, uh, became governor of Kansas afterwards. In fact, six of the first 24 governors of the state of Kansas were newspaper editors. Uh, White comes uh, to prominence in the late 19th century. Uh, so after that earlier generation is kind of passing, and then he helps pass the torch on to a third generation. And, of course, primarily Republican Party politics, of course. Because we're in Kansas. Because we're in Kansas. That moving back and forth between journalism and government is something that faded away probably in the 1950s. In fact, it's, it's hard to conceive, uh, Steve Banyan from Breitbart aside, it's hard to conceive of a of a newspaper editor moving into into politics now. Why was it so accepted back then? Well, I think it's because of a, a different nature of of their how they perceive their role. Uh, editors like White saw themselves as town boosters or community boosters, change agents. Yeah, change agents to a certain extent, holding the community up to a certain standard, trying to get people to live up to that and to uh, help. Uh, bring about growth and prosperity in the community, and they celebrated those things. And one of the ways they could could do that would be to have, or to further that goal would be to have some influence in party politics. I'm not a, a historian of journalism, but I think it certainly was common, into, as you say, into the 1950s at least, for them to be more of a, a promoter as opposed to a critic. Now, there were others that took a different tact, but White certainly was in the tradition, and I think some of these others of, of that went became prominent or continued to be prominent in the 50s and maybe 60s uh, of being, you know, boosters of the community. And uh, certainly William Rockhill Nelson from the yeah, Kansas City Star would, exactly. uh, would fall the, into that who, and also and be prominent in Republican politics. One of those politics. that would, would be considered uh, in some ways a mentor to White uh, one of, in uh, his early career. Uh, so that's that's very true, and I think that would be... And there wasn't the, you know, the objective, the emphasis on objective journalism that would tend to cause you to stay out of politics. I think that what we have today with, with uh, cable news networks that reflect kind of extreme positions on both sides have brought us into a new era uh, where we might have to can totally reevaluate that again. But certainly in newspaper journalism, which... Um, uh, was so important up into the 60s in local newspapers. Uh, you have no reluctance to express those political views and to become more actively involved. 
Six of the first 24 governors of Kansas were newspaper editors, a fact that thoroughly surprised me. John Martin was elected governor in 1884. He owned a free state paper in Atchison, first called Freedom's Champion. In 1918, Kansas elected Henry J. Allen governor. He owned papers in Salina, Ottawa, and Wichita. As Virgil said, there's Clyde Reed, who was governor and senator and owned the Parsons' son. And then there's Clyde Reed Jr., who would take over the son from his father. When you want to talk Parsons, journalism, and politics in Kansas, you go to my KCUR colleague and friend for 25 years, Jim McLean, who started his career at KLKC Radio in Parsons. You know, uh, you are a uh, Southeast Kansas Parsons boy. That I am. And I want to talk about the Parsons' son and Clyde Reed Jr., Mm -hmm. uh, about the paper and what he meant to that community. I had a lot of respect for Clyde Reed. Everybody did. He was both admired, loved, and feared. His wife, Betty, was a wonderful person. He was, uh, I think, characteristic and emblematic of a whole network of these small-town editors that, as I said before, not only had a a great deal of influence within their communities, people listened to them in those days, but a lot of statewide influence, particularly when it came to public uh, uh, political matters. I want to skip past uh, your days at KLKC (laughs) and past your days at KANU, where we first met and worked together, and I want to go into your political life uh, and talk about what it's like to be in the room with these editors or editorial board uh, members uh, because you were uh, working for Jim Slattery when he ran uh, for governor. What was it like to to be in the room, to know that an endorsement in Iola or Parsons or McPherson could be critical to the campaign? How did you prepare and what was that like? That's interesting because whether it was true or not, that really is what we thought in those days is these were influential people and we thought that their endorsement on election day really really mattered and so when i worked briefly for jim slattery when he was a member of congress is when the second district extended all the way down into southeast kansas it had just been a a northeast kansas district until uh, because of redistricting the the fifth district was eliminated and the second district then stretched covered roughly the the eastern third of the state from the northern border with nebraska all the way down to southeast kansas and oklahoma and missouri borders so at that time uh congressman slattery was being introduced to a bunch of new territory and, and one of the first things that we did was to contact some of the editors of these emerson lynn in particular in iola uh by that time, uh, Clyde Reed Jr. was no longer at the Sun and, may, in fact, may have, have passed away by that time. But Emerson was still uh, holding fast in Iola at the Iola Register. And he was a moderate Republican voice. His editorials were very influential. He was a really good writer, a really clear writer. And what Emerson thought of you made a big difference. And so I can still remember reaching out to him, uh, trying to set up a meeting, a get acquainted meeting, because he didn't know Jim and Jim didn't know uh, Emerson. So we ended up having lunch at his house in Iola, uh, and his wife, Mickey, who was just a wonderful person, served lunch. And they just talked about, it was a, an hour and a half, two hour long conversation about world affairs and political affairs and, uh, in the country and in Kansas. And uh, it was just a... Um, to sit back and witness that, you know, my job was to be kind of, was to set up the meeting and then uh, not uh, intrude and just to let the two of them get to know one another. But to watch that unfold, um, a lot of mutual respect there. And what ended up happening is in that first congressional race, uh, Jim Slattery was running against, I, I think, Jim Van Slyke in, in that district at the time. 
uh, who I've come to really like in the years since. But I think Emerson Lynn gave Slattery his endorsement. And to us, that really mattered. It was a stamp of approval. Uh, Emerson was a legend in southeast Kansas. And so when you're the new guy coming down in the southeast Kansas and, and Emerson says you're okay, uh, we thought that meant a lot to people and that carried a lot of weight. So it was really important uh, in, in those days for you to make the rounds and go to all these newspapers and to respectfully introduce yourself to these editors. Uh, and you did it at radio stations too, but it was different when you walked into somebody's newspaper because these people were generally were publishers and editors both and owned the newspapers. And so uh, th- I can remember that, that particular instance very vividly. Do you think that politics in Kansas or these communities are not as well served because mm-hmm. those long-time editors and publishers aren't there that sometimes span two or three generations. Are we not right. served as well, do you think? Well, it's funny because you, you can make a case whenever you're looking back or looking forward, you know, the, the, the idealistic look at the good old days. Things were better then. And you can make that case in a lot of different instances. But in, in this case, I actually think there's some truth to it in, in a lot of respects. Some of these small Kansas communities have changed a great deal. I mean, this is one illustration of how they changed. But I remember, you know, growing up, going to junior high and high school in Parsons, you'd go downtown and there'd be three or four men's stores and lots of independently owned retail outlets. Uh, that's really not the case anymore. The, that merchant class in those small towns has largely disappeared. You know, the, the Walmarts and the big box stores and so forth have even have come in and put a lot of those places uh, out of business. And those are the people who served on the school boards and the city commissions and, and that kind of thing. And then the newspaper editor and the, and the locally owned newspaper was an important part of that continuum. And again, uh, most of those small town papers now are parts of chains. I mean, in those days, the Parson Sun was an independently owned newspaper. The Iowa Register's the same. It is now still, but it was then as well. And, uh, and the Seton chain, I mean, Manhattan Mercury and the Winfield uh, Daily Courier, it was, but it was, it, it all felt more local. And those editors, you know, were, were really vested and invested in their communities and cared a great deal about local affairs. And so uh, it was just different. And when, when newspapers started then become, uh, when those small town newspapers became parts of larger chains uh, and the editors were more transient, it, it, things did change at that point. And I do think communities, generally speaking, have been less well served by that. While most Kansas publishers and editors ran newspapers that were small to medium-sized, there was one who ran a huge media empire, and I've saved him for last. Friends in the radio audience, this is my last day as a senator from the state of Kansas. That's Arthur Capper in January 1949 in his farewell address. Born in 1865 in Garnett, he was 84 and nearly deaf when he made this broadcast. He served as both governor and senator. By the way, he served in the Senate with two other publishers we talked about in this episode, Henry J. Allen and Clyde Reed. So I saved Capper for last because while the title of this episode of Archiver is small but powerful, Capper's media holdings were anything but small. He owned the Topeka Daily Capital, published Capper's Weekly, and later would own WIBW Radio and TV in Topeka. In 1919, 1.7 million people subscribed to his various publications. His speech was a bit of a who's who of people and politicians in his life. There was Charles Curtis from Kansas, who served as Herbert Hoover's vice president, the Kingfish, Huey Long from Louisiana, and Senator Robert LaFollette, the Republican progressive and anti-war crusader from Wisconsin. 
Capper knew Cary Nation, and his father knew John Brown. The speech was 15 minutes. This is the portion from the end that stuck with me. I think I have got a lot out of life. I enjoyed life as a boy, as a parent, as a reporter, as an editor, as a publisher. I certainly enjoyed being governor of Kansas. I've tried to do a good job, too, as senator for Kansas. I believe it is correct to say that I have been in public life close to three score of my more than four score years, and I hope that I have learned something from those years. In that time, I've come to have a wholesome respect over the long pull for the opinions and decisions of the majority. But I have learned also that in times of excitement and stress and strain, a majority can be most terribly and completely and brutally wrong. In times of excitement and stress and strain, a majority can be most terribly and completely and brutally wrong. I suspect Capper's talking about the Sedition Act of 1918, or maybe the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. It may have been a warning about the Patriot Act. What is true is this certainly seems like something politicians and editorial writers should remember today. And that's Archiver. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Archiver is a co-production of Fountain City Frequency and Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer. You can see pictures of many of our editors-turned-politicians at FountainCityFrequency.com. My thanks to Jim McLean and to Daryl Garwood at the Kansas Historical Society. And hey, if you like the podcast, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. For my favorite Kansas historian, Virgil Dean, I'm Sam Zeff. I'll see you on the next Archiver. <laughs>